The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning, church. We're the Carmichaels. I'm Janine. I'm Dennis. I'm Avia. And I'm Everly. This morning we're going to read from Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. And now we'll read from Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 9. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence and mission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And, once made perfect, he became a source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. The Word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, uh, Dennis and Janine and the girls. Carmichael's, it was great to hear you read the scripture this morning. Let's just take a moment to pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, right now we ask you to draw back the curtain and enable us to see with more clarity what it meant for you to become flesh, to become a man, to be born and to live among us. And Lord, may we, like those who first knew you, may we see your glory more because of looking into the scripture today. And Father, may we respond to that glory with not only our own obedience, but our service uh, to you and to others. Would you guide us, Lord? In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, this morning as we continue in our Advent series uh, talking about fleshing out Christmas, we come to the subject of Jesus being tempted by the devil And indeed, uh, the theme of our message this morning is something that every one of us have had experience in, uh, probably started learning about it a lot earlier than we realized. In fact, parents of toddlers observe the first signs of temptation quite early in life, likely. Uh, The precious little two-year-old that is told not to touch something uh, finds him or herself actually moving closer and closer to that thing that they are not to touch, looking right at mom and dad and reaching out that hand and all the while with a nice smile on their face, 
Obviously, this kind of action needs to be disciplined somehow because what starts as an innocent pushing of the boundaries uh, can lead to a serious problem if unchecked. And even grandparents, if they are wise, will come to a place where they leave their parental amnesia aside and recognize that, that um, children, even little ones, can be tempted. And so in about a month, we're going to actually begin a study of the book of Romans, and we will be looking more clearly at what this thing is called temptation, called sin. And we're going to understand more about that as Paul unpacks it in the book of Romans. Today, we're going to study how Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, and we're going to understand a little bit more of how he can help us. He said to us that he, we should pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so today, let's look at this. But let's look at it through the right lens. There's a book by a man named Brian, um, Brian Hedges called With Jesus, Finding Your Place in the Story of Christ. And he describes that there are different lenses that we can read the gospel accounts of Christ's life with. There is, for example, he says, the lens of inspiring stories. We can read about Jesus and we can see him healing the sick or confronting the hypocritical religious leaders and we can say, wow, that is just inspires me. Uh, another way is through the lens of imitation. We can look at Jesus and we can say, wow, he in, is incredible, his love for the most unlovely, even for his enemies. And we could look at how his example of morality and kindness and so on, and we want to imitate that. We could also look at through purely information, the, the lens of information. Like a student that is detached from the subject matter, we can look at uh, the life of Christ and, and purely look at it for, in, for information in academic sense. But then there is, of course, and he says, this author says that there is the opportunity for us to look at it through the gospel lens. And by that, he means that we're looking at it through the lens of our union with Jesus Christ for all of us who are Christians. Through this lens, we experience all that Christ experienced. We locate our story in his story. And we're not in the habit of doing that well. I understand that most of us who have walked with the Lord for a while get the idea of Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, that somehow that Jesus took my sins to the cross and I receive his spirit, he is in me and I am in him and that union is there. But, but we are talking today about going further than that, that in, in indeed uh, we find our place in everything that he experienced, his birth his growing up, his baptism, his temptation in the wilderness, everything that Jesus experienced. For he was acting as our representative. And where the first Adam failed to succeed, failed on behalf of humanity, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, succeeds. We'll talk about that a little more later. And so we see ourselves in Jesus. Let's take a look at the scripture that we're going to be studying. And I, I um, really looked at it through four different ways. The realm of temptation, response to temptation, relief in temptation, and rescue from temptation. 
We're going to look at those uh, four points, but I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to run through the first three pretty quickly because I really want us to spend some time on the fourth one. So what does it mean then when I say realm of temptation? It's interesting that Matthew's account describes Satan as the tempter. Mark's account calls him Satan, and Luke's account calls him the devil, or the devil means slanderer or accuser. These are the three main titles that are given in the scriptures to the enemy of our souls. And so there is no question, because of the gospel accounts, there is no question who it was that Jesus confronted in the wilderness when he was fasting and praying and being tempted. And this same enemy, Satan, the devil, the tempter, has three strategies that he wants to use against us. He did it against Adam and Eve in the the garden. Originally, he, he did it against Israel in the wilderness. Uh, he did it against Jesus. He, did it, he does it against us. And uh, these are the realms, I say, of what Jesus faced. It starts in the scriptures in Matthew 4, verse 3, that the devil said, command these stones to become bread. Jesus was fasting for days when this came along. He was hungry. He was weak. And the desire of the flesh to to feed itself was there. The second one, in chapter 4, verse 5, it says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Down, this idea of testing God. Make God the Father spare you. And then the third temptation was to, uh, to worship the devil himself. To put God, the sovereign one, aside and to, to instead have some idol take over your heart. And so Jesus said, responding with Scripture, said, serve the Lord and worship him alone. In a corresponding way, John, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, calls these three the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. One author said this, let no one imagine that because of our oneness with Christ in the heavenlies, that we are therefore brought into some fool's paradise which exempts us from further suffering. We will be tempted as long as we live in this body. We will face temptation. And Jesus is the one that can lead us through it. What is the response that we see in Jesus to temptation? Well, in Matthew 4, we we see him respond with Scripture. Every time that the devil misquoted Scripture for a wrong end, Jesus properly quoted Scripture for the right end of delivering us. And indeed, uh, as we've heard before, a half-truth, like the devil would quote, presented as a whole truth becomes an untruth. And similarly, we must learn to strive to not only know Scripture and let it guide our lives, but know when to apply it in those moments particularly, wielding the sword of the Spirit. But it's interesting that as we move into Jesus' life, we see that he responded to temptation not only with the Word of God, but also with prayer and with fellowship. We see the other extreme temptation that Jesus faced was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in Gethsemane, we're told that he prayed earnestly, and he also invited his friends to join him in that prayer. Peter, James, and John, his closest allies. These three things are indeed things that we can do when we face temptation. When we respond to temptation properly, we let the Word of God lead us. We let prayer be our breath, 
up to God, and we invite others that we can trust into that same toil and pain of temptation that we are facing. And in fact, it, it's interesting, in Matthew 26, 38, when Jesus is in that garden of Gethsemane, he says to Peter, James, and John, he says, my soul is troubled even to the point of death. I mean, what an incredible confession the Son of God makes to his earthly friends. My soul is so troubled I could die. Have you ever gone to a friend, phoned them up, talked to them and said, I want you to know I am so rattled right now with temptation. My, my heart is so troubled within me. I am breathing. I am, I, my heart is beating faster. I need to talk to somebody about this. I'm being tempted. Have you ever done that? Go to the Word of God. Go to prayer. Go to somebody that you can trust. Bring someone else into your arena of suffering and overcome together in the, Lord, in the Lord's name. The third thing that we see in this scripture is a relief in temptation. And we see that God sent the relief in the form of angels. In Matthew 4, verse 11, it says, The devil left Jesus. He left him. And it says, Angels came and ministered to Jesus. You know, in, math, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, angels are called ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. And God in his mercy is able to aid us, to assist us, to give us relief. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but with that temptation will also give you an escape, give you a way out. And then it's interesting. We don't, we don't go on to the next verse, but in the very next verse, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Idolatry, temptation is usually connected to an idolatry of the heart. I was blessed to hear Cheryl this morning speak of the idols that can displace God the Father on our throne, heart's throne. And it is not cowardly, friends, to flee from temptation. It is not cowardly to run away from those things. That is what God's word says. And so relief in temptation comes in the form of angels. It comes in the form of an escape that God provides. It comes in the form of other people that can help you. You see, Satan will not stay on your case when he can't win that battle. He is called a roaring lion, roaming around looking for someone to devour. His evil spirits, the demons that serve Satan, are also roaming around the earth looking for someone to devour. And when they don't have success, they move on for another opportune time. We know this from experience, that not every moment of every day or night is the same in the intensity of our temptations. But we also know it from what Jesus experienced. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 13, it says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. You see, Satan had thrown everything he had for 40 days and 40 nights against Jesus and had no success, and finally he went away until another opportune time came. 
That word for opportune time is kairos. That special moment can be a good moment. It could be a terribly difficult moment, evil moment. And so Jesus tells us as well that the enemy will come and return to us at opportune times. When we are vulnerable, when we are alone, when because of our pride we walk alone in temptations, when our hearts are troubled, we must be wise and ready. We must, as Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. <clears throat> well, let's move on to the fourth and final and main point I want to talk about this morning. And that is the rescue that we have from temptation. You might wonder how we even know about this story if Jesus was in the wilderness alone being tempted by the devil. Well, I can tell you that we know about it because Jesus told his disciples. That's why we know about it. And he told his disciples because it was meant to be part of their discipleship. Jesus wanted those who followed him, and including us because we have the record of it in Scripture, he wanted us to know how he faced temptation and how he can invite us into the victory that he also experienced. I want to read to you a, a, an excerpt from a pastor from Scotland named James Stewart who writes what I think is, is an insightful comment about this wilderness experience. He says, Jesus told this story. Jesus told this story because the titanic struggle of the desert days and nights had marked his soul forever. And he could never forget it. He could see and feel it after months as plainly as if it had happened only yesterday. The wild, desolate loneliness of the desert, the rock and the crags with pitiless sun beating down on them day by day, and the biting night wind moaning across in the dark, the prowling beasts, the famishing hunger, and then those demon voices whispering in his ears and to his heart. And yet, the grace of God with him and the angels of God that had brought him through it. Jesus told his disciples of it because he could not help it. It would not hide. Friends, I want to suggest to you this morning that we underestimate the stress and trauma of this event at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, just like we underestimate the stress and trauma at the end of his public ministry when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. These two incredible tests and temptings were punctuating the beginning and the end of his public ministry. Nothing to, to that degree caused him such strife. If any one of us were to experience what Jesus experienced in those 40 days and 40 nights today, we would return and be diagnosed with PTSD, a post-traumatic stress disorder that would mark us for life, just as it marked Jesus as well for life. But it's interesting because beyond marking Jesus for life in a negative way, perhaps we could say, that he couldn't forget, that he passed on to his disciples so that we could also stand up under it. 
It says in the scripture in Luke 4.14 that Jesus returned not just with PTSD, perhaps. It says Jesus returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that incredible? Such incredible turmoil and temptation, and Jesus returns in the power of the Holy Spirit. What I believe that this teaches us and shows us is that it is possible to feel incredible vulnerability, incredible weakness, and face extreme temptation, and yet be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Just because you are being tempted, just because you are facing weakness, just because you are feeling so vulnerable, does not mean that you are not filled with the Holy Spirit. As I was reviewing this morning's notes, and I was asking the Lord to give me some story to share about some things in my life that might be relevant here. And I, I thought this morning of a time back in 1982 when I was at Winnipeg Bible College, now called Providence. And it was um, the Youth Encounter Weekend. And we had called from Europe Billy Strachan of Cape and Ray Schools to come and be our guest speaker. And because I was the student body president and my friend Chris Ernst was the vice president, we had the opportunity of meeting alone with Billy Strachan. And we had an opportunity to share with him, and he, he, he talked and shared with us, and I was just in awe of this incredible Bible teacher. But what really made me want to pay attention that weekend to his messages was something that he shared when we were just the three of us alone in an office before the first evening. He shared with us about the incredible sexual temptations that he has faced. He shared with us that at one time he could recall being in a, in a hotel room with his Bible open on his lap, laying in bed, shaking with temptation and vulnerability because prostitutes were right outside in the hallway. And I remember thinking just incredible that this man of God would share such a vulnerable moment with us young guys. But I realized that Jesus was walking it out with this guy. And he was not afraid of his vulnerability. And he was not willing to hide anything because he knew that alone he would be a victim and not a victor. And you will be a victim and not a victor if you try to fight your temptations alone as well. I looked it up this morning, and Billy Strachan died several years ago. But I don't think he'd mind me sharing that story today. Just as Jesus passed on the dealings of his difficult temptations, I believe that whenever we pass on our difficulties and share our journey and our story, we bless somebody else. And so we see in this scripture <clears throat> Jesus being tempted and recognizing that he is able to overcome. I want to clarify that um, when we read these events in the life of Jesus, we must not somehow think that he didn't face it just as, as gravely as we face it. He, I want you to know he didn't try to call down a favor from God the Father, though the enemy tried to make him do so. If we're going to really receive from Jesus the sympathy we need and the power we need to overcome our temptations, then we must believe what the Scriptures teach. 
What do they teach? Well, one scripture in Hebrews 4, 15 says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then go with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Robert Coleman, the author of The Master Plan of Evangelism, says this. He says, The incarnation brings into our human experience the meaning of God as He lives in our place. That's the the, the secret of Christ's union with humanity in His incarnation. He was tempted as we are tempted, always without sin. So Jesus' full union with us as humans enables our communion and union with Him and the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so anything in you, anything in I, that brings a fog of unbelief around these doctrines, these teachings, is going to make you weaker when you face temptation. You must reject any idea that Jesus was not fully tempted as a man in every way such as we are, yet without sin. You must reject those ideas and thoughts. You must reject the idea that says he really doesn't understand my problem. You must reject the idea that he really can't sympathize with me. You must reject the idea that he really can't enable me to to rise above it. You must reject those ideas. They are from the same tempter that met Jesus in the wilderness. This kind of unbelief will undermine your ability to draw down the grace of God when you are at your most vulnerable time. I want to challenge you this day, I want to challenge you this morning to put aside all doubting. I want to challenge you to put aside all skepticism and unbelief, to believe what God has said is true, to believe what Hebrews 7.25 says, that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I want you to believe this. Believe and stop doubting. You, my friend, you are no more a sinner than any other mortal that has come to, to God humbly and has sought his refuge, his, his, uh, his grace, and confessed their inability. You are no more a sinner than anyone else. And Jesus can give you the grace to rise above your temptations and give you the grace to even when you've fallen, get back on the righteous path of obedience to Jesus. Do not disgrace the grace that is given to you through Jesus Christ in thinking that he was not tempted as you are, that he cannot sympathize, that he cannot or will not save you. Even you do not disbelieve. But how? How is, is, is a question you might be asking at this point. How is it possible that Jesus is that kind of God, that kind of substitute, that kind of sympathizer, that kind of mediator, that kind of priest and helper and savior? How is it that he could be that? Well, let me share with you some scripture. And I believe these three scriptures will help you understand why and how it is possible that Jesus could be this. The first one is in Luke 2.52. It simply says this, that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Meaning, it simply means that he grew up like any other human. There were no shortcuts. 
He had to grow up like any other human baby. There were no shortcuts. The second scripture from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. It says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Meaning, Jesus had to be made perfect, mature and complete through what he suffered. And all of us also will mature only through suffering so that he could bring us to glory based on his merit. We pick up our cross and we follow Jesus. And the cross is an instrument of suffering. And then most importantly, the scripture found in Hebrews chapter 5, it says in verse 7, in the days of his life, his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Meaning, Jesus had to learn obedience, just like you and I do. Jesus had to learn obedience through what he, what he suffered. He cried out to God. He had many tears, just as you and I will. But we have the advantage of the Christ who is with us and in us and as us. You know, it's interesting in this scripture, the word for learned obedience. The word for learned is the, is the same as the word for disciple. It comes from the same root. A disciple is a learner. Does it surprise you that Jesus had to be discipled? Jesus had to be discipled in order for him to make disciples. In fact, I believe that the reason that his public ministry did not start until he was 30 years of age is because he had those 30 years of discipleship under God the Father. And he had to learn how to be obedient. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And he had to be tempted in every way as such as we are and yet without sin. And so he went through this growing up, maturing, discipling process, just like all of us are called to do. We must put aside childish ways and grow up in our faith, grow up in our humility, grow up in our virtue of Christ. Jesus started out like any other baby. One author puts it this way, God the baby. <laughs> God whose diapers must be changed. God who must be burped after feeding. God, who must be potty trained. God, who needed to grow up and deal with the temptations that a two-year-old faces and the temptations that a 32-year-old faces. God, who had to grow up in all ways and be tempted in all ways such as we are, yet without sin. And so he learned obedience. You and I learn obedience. Piper, John Piper, says that this means that Jesus moved from an untested obedience and then through suffering into a, a tested obedience. It did not mean moving from sinfulness to sinlessness. He was sinless already, but an untested obedience into a tested obedience. You see, the, the same word for testing and temptation exists in the New Testament. God the Father comes, and in, in his wonderful goodness, he disciplines those he loves and accepts as children, and he tests our faith, even as he did Abraham. But Satan comes along and 
takes the same event in history, in our lives, the same circumstances, the same vulnerabilities, and he tries to tempt us. He tries to push us beyond the limit to disobey God. So what does all this mean for us? Well, it means this. It means that where we fail, Jesus succeeded. Jesus succeeded and offered himself as a perfect substitute for us. His obedience can become our obedience. We are in union with Jesus. Think about the last time that you fell into temptation. Think about the last time that you disobeyed the Father. The gospel teaches us that God counts Christ's obedience in that moment as your obedience and success. That is our union with Jesus. You know, when the disciples heard this story of Jesus, when he recounted this 40 days in the wilderness that he had experienced, they surely would have thought about a time in Israel's history, the 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness is a reflection and reminder of the 40 years in the wilderness that the Israelites faced. And they were tempted by hunger, and they grumbled against God in Exodus 16. And they were tempted to worship other things than God, Exodus 32, the golden calf. And they were tested, testing God in the wilderness, Exodus 17. And each passage that is shared, what, what it's saying is that Jesus relived the history of Israel and succeeded where they failed. That's the history lesson that Jesus is teaching in those 40 days. Just as where our first Adam failed in every way, Jesus, the second Adam, also succeeds. And he can live and where, where you are, and he can live in you and as you and succeed where you have failed. Where you have failed over and over again, Jesus can come and live in you and enable you to succeed. Think about it. Adam, our first representative in a paradise, disobeyed God fell into temptation. Jesus, in a wilderness, succeeded. He reversed every aspect of the fall. He didn't just become a model or an example, you know, quote scripture when you're facing temptation. That's not the lesson. He's saying instead that because of our union with Jesus, he can give you the power to overcome. He is our champion who fights our battles as we lean upon him and rely upon him to be the one. And he does not stand over you when you've fallen in sin, when you've yielded to temptation. He does not stand over you with his hands folded and say, I, I did it, how come you can't? He doesn't do that. It's not the kind of savior that Jesus is. He stands beside you. He sits beside you. He walks beside you with his understanding. He is able to sympathize because he was tempted in all ways, such as you are, yet without sin. And so I want to encourage you this morning, follow after this Jesus. Pursue him with all your might. Let him be the first love that you return to, even as the Ephesian church needed to. Imagine in your mind, just incredible, the matchless perfection of Jesus, that in all 33 years of his living, not one thought, not one 
idea in his head, not one motive in his heart, not one attitude in his disposition, not one word out of his mouth, not one action, not one response to somebody in anger, not one thing about the Lord Jesus Christ was sinful. He was sinless. He can enter into your realm of experience. He can enter into you and give you the grace that you lack to overcome. Pat and I have always loved Handel's Messiah, the incredible piece of work that he wrote in just 24 days, we're told. And George Frederick Handel was a Lutheran composer in the 18th century that finished this entire score in 1741, and in every year since 1741, it has been performed on stages around the world. The thing that's interesting is that it was arranged in three acts, and it uses 53 different passages from the Bible in the score of music, telling the story of Jesus Christ from before he was born, the prophecies in the Old Testament, to his incredible incarnation and birth, his growing up, his death and resurrection, his return again someday, his ascension, his eternal kingdom. It's an incredible story in musical form. Jesus' union with our broken humanity makes possible our union with him in matchless grace because Handel was thinking primarily about the incarnation when he wrote it. What I didn't know until just recently was that Handel depended on a man by the name of Charles Jennings. Charles Jennings to compile the scriptures that were used in the Messiah. And there are two passages that do not appear in the musical score, not sung. It's because they were part of a preface to the whole score. One is Colossians 2.3, Christ, the mystery of God, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But the second one is a, an incredible passage from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where it says this, that Christ, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, he, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. What a sound Christology this is. What an incredible, incredible display of the entire being of Jesus Christ in, in just one verse. And so as we conclude our message this morning and our service, I want to pray for you and us, and, and then I want to leave you with that incredible piece of music from Handel's Messiah that's based on Isaiah chapter 40 in verse 5. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, now as we <clears throat> conclude our time together, we, we just thank you for this display of Jesus, the strength of Jesus, the power of Jesus to draw down the grace of God in the moment of his deepest trials and temptations, both at the wilderness temptation and as well at Gethsemane. And Lord, we know that you gave us these stories because you want us to understand that through our union with Jesus that every blood-bought Christian has not just an example to follow in him, but an actual grace upon us to be able to rise above, to resist, and to be rescued from that moment of temptation. Oh, Jesus, would you, by your Holy Spirit, 
put these thoughts deeper within us. Enable us when that opportune time comes again and the enemy comes against us, would you enable us to depend upon the high priest that we have, Jesus the one who sympathizes with us in our weakness, who was tempted in all ways such as we are, yet without sin. May we rise above by the grace of God, weak as we are, vulnerable as we are. May we experience the grace and the power of Jesus Christ, the incarnate God. We ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen.